0: Greetings, Hope Church. We continue again today in our series uh, through the pastoral letters, specifically in the first of those three letters, 1 Timothy. Uh, The series is called Entrusted to You, which is borrowing the language Paul uses to Timothy regarding entrusted with the gospel and the work of ministry and the life and work of the church there in verse 18 of chapter 1, which we have yet to even get to yet. Today we're working through verses 3 through 11. So I'm going to pray and start our time in God's Word, asking the Lord to minister to us uh, and to you. Uh, I know my own time this week, and the Word ministered to me, and I pray that and know fully well that God uh, never leaves His vo- His Word void and will minister to you by His Spirit as well. So let's just pray together. Father, be with us now as we jump into this text, as we listen to Your Word, as we seek to apply it to our lives, and to respond to it in a proper way. Thank you for your word, which we should always be grateful for, that we have it in our own tongue, and we have resources to study it and access to it even during this COVID season. So be with us now as we spend time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you the overall message of this text. I want to start this morning with the overall thrust, because to be fair, even as the text was read for you this morning, if you weren't paying close attention, it might have kind of just kind of been a, a bit of a blur. And even so, and maybe, maybe, maybe you were read this through beforehand, it's not a simple text. So so I thought I'd start this morning by just giving you the overall message. And and here it is. Here's my take in about 10 words. Avoid false doctrines and hold to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. So, So this text is giving both a negative and a positive. Don't do this, but do this. Avoid false doctrines, which is what Paul exhorts Timothy to deal with and address at the beginning of our text, in verses 3 and following, and by the end of the text, in verse 11, where it all is summarized together, the, the gist of it, we would summarize that as saying, hold the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Well, those are things that we want to reflect on this morning. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context where it seems like Paul is going In regard to Timothy, it's difficult to know the exact circumstances, but we can note that the Apostle Paul, right after his greeting in verse 3, begins with some pretty intense language toward an assignment he's giving to Timothy. Look at the language. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. And why? So that, here's the reason. So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to, et cetera, et cetera. He, he goes on. While it's difficult to know exactly what's behind Paul's urging to Timothy, let me throw this out to you. The church in Ephesus was one of the most strategic and culturally important in all of Asia, Timothy, though, is a young pastor. He may have wanted to serve in a less difficult environment. There was a lot of cultural pressure, some bigwigs, some, some movers and shakers. There were a lot of issues in the church. There was a lot of theological complexity that needed pastoring and shepherding. And Paul knows this, and he wants a pastor to jump into that with spiritual authority and speaking of those things. Clearly, he's seeing that Timothy is reticent. He's, he's hesitant to do so. So not only is he urging him when he was with him, brother, this is where you got to serve. These people need shepherding. You are the person to do this. But he's also exhorting him through this letter to do the same. Paul wants him to command the people like a proper under-shepherd of Christ. That's the language used in verse 3. This isn't Paul saying he's giving the command to Timothy, though certainly there's an implication there because he's an apostle. He is saying that he wants Pastor Timothy to command certain people, to rebuke, to stop, to teach against false doctrines. Paul is concerned, and Timothy would likely agree, that too many people in the church in Ephesus have moved away from core doctrines biblical doctrines and spend time focusing on what Paul describes as myths and genealogies rather than, as verse 4 says, rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So this is a pastoral charge to Timothy for the care of the souls in his church. So you can see at the front end of this pastoral letter to Timothy He's exhorting Timothy to do a kind of pastoral work, but he's also giving insights into a situation in a local church. Brothers and sisters, this, this fits our own context in numerous ways. We too can have issues that we need to be addressing biblically, theologically. There might be some some our own doctrinal confusions or some false doctrines, even if implicit. Or in, in in small ways that need to be addressed and spoken to, that there's a shepherding work that we should be doing as the Church of Jesus Christ, and so we want to hear that today. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning showing how this passage teaches us three important truths about which we should reflect upon and respond, and I'll and I'll hit on all three of those in the rest of our time. Here's the first, and we get this straight away from verse three. Pastors and elders should minister with spiritual authority in their care for souls. We learn a significant lesson from Paul's exhortation to Pastor Timothy. We learn that he has been given a Apostolic impetus and urging his own command to invest spiritually with an authority in the lives of the people in his congregation. When I say pastor elders, I'm talking about one of the offices that Christ established in his church. Like we, we understand well, like for example, in the United States, the three branches of government. We also understand the office of the President of the United States, which is even now this very week, resulting in transitional period from one to the other. Wherever you stand on that is is not what I'm trying to discuss. But you understand well that the office exists even if a person comes and goes. God has established one of the offices he established is the office of pastor elder. Now, I like to use the category pastor elder because too often we, we don't see those as working together. We often think of, a, of someone like me who's called pastor as having a distinct role than someone like Brian Ott or Ed Kipp or Ed Titcomb or Neil Nyer or other elders who hold in that same office here in our church. But brothers and sisters, they are part of the same office. The distinction between myself and Ed Titcomb or Ed Kipp or Neil Nyer or Brian Ott or Doug julian I could list them all. The difference between me and them is I am a staff pastor elder. They are a lay pastor elder. I don't do external work by maybe teaching full-time at a local divinity school or teaching at a college somewhere so that I am freed to do the ministry and do building up and prepare teaching, but I'm holding the same office. That's why I, I like to use the language of pastor elders, so that you don't see a distinction between the office that I hold and Ed Kipp holds, or the office that I hold and Ed Doug Juleen is part of, because we are all part of that one office of pastor elders, which, has, which is a number of people. So this text is teaching us that this office of pastor elder in a local church should minister with spiritual authority in their care for souls. That your shepherds, uh, the under shepherds of Christ, which is what a pastor elder is. We are under shepherds of Christ. We should minister with spiritual authority. We should speak at times, with a prophetic kind of voice. I mean, you can think of the offices of Christ, this prophet, priest, of king, as being reflected in many ways in the life and ministry of a pastor elder. At times, a, a, a pastor elder uh, is, is a kingly duty of organizing and, and preparing for a service and organizing ministry. There's a kingly role. At other times, a, the office, a, a pastor elder might have a priestly role of sitting and meeting with somebody, like I did early. This morning, and loving fellowship with a younger brother in Christ, or meeting with a couple going through marital difficulties, or visiting with somebody who is sick or in the hospital. Like, there's those priestly duties of a pastor, elder, but there's also the prophet, prophet, priest, king. There's also the prophetic role at times, rebuking, correcting, chastising, even as I did in the sermon a few months ago now, right. Before election season, in a sermon I entitled, "The Lord Laughs," where I gave a prophetic voice, not forthtelling like the future, or foretelling like the future, but forthtelling, where I speak into the context from God's word and said, "Brothers and sisters, don't forget the kingdom of God in the midst of our human talk of politics. Don't forget the kingdom of God. Don't act like your primary citizenship is in this country and not in heaven. Like don't forget that. There's me having a prophetic role with a spiritual authority to remind myself and us as a church to stay on track with who God is and what his word teaches us. Now, these this, this, this role of the pastor elder isn't necessarily one that is always privileged, certainly anymore. We don't live in a day and an age where a where the office of pastor-elder came with great respect. We don't have our clerical garbs and respected in the community. In fact, it's quite the opposite, even in the church. We live in an age of freedom, of individualism, of anti-institutionalism and anti-authority. And, and, and even just add to that the consumeristic bent of our day and age, that a lot of times if a person gets... Uh, Rebuked or chastised, they just go to another church. we've had several people come through here, and people leave here and go through other churches where because they just felt like they were being rebuked in a certain way can you Can you imagine what Paul would say to Timothy if Timothy went to these people espousing various misgenealogies genealogies that were distracting or distorting or or just because they were devoting themselves again, beginning of verse four to these false or half truths and then they decide we're we're not going to go to First Baptist Church of Ephesus we're going to go to First Presbyterian Church in Ephesus can you imagine what Paul would say what would he say to those Christians or what the pastor at First Presbyterian should say to the people that just left First Baptist Ephesus Well, what do you think you're doing? You have no right to run from that as if you no longer shop at Walmart and you'll move to Target your pastor has an authority over you now, we want to say that cautiously and carefully because we know that we are in an age where there are broken churches, broken pastors, where there have been numerous examples of abuse and totalitarianism that should not be evidenced at all in a local church. A pastor that exhibits those things should be removed, would be disqualified from the office of pastor elder. This very book, as we'll get to in a matter of weeks, will address those specific things. And we've seen numerous examples of that in sexual ways, in power, and and, in financial ways in our own Chicagoland area. That should not be what we experience in our local church. So none of this talk of spiritual authority is meant to mask or eclipse or deny that there is real abuse happening and can happen in churches. It is to say also though that a lack of spiritual authority is itself abusive, meaning if your if your pastor elders do not speak into your life, if they're afraid because they know your customers and they don't want you to shop elsewhere, if they're afraid to speak the truth because they don't want to Deal with conflict and difficult conversations. if they just want to be liked and, and, and loved and, and have everybody get along, and not really invest in have truths or, or areas of brokenness in your life that Christ has assigned them to do that that itself is an abuse. that would not be appropriate for a pastor elder. That's why the qualifications for this office are so high and humbling. That's the first thing I wanted to share this morning. Here's the second. This is found in the middle of verse three through verse five. One of the primary ways a local church expresses the love of God is by opposing false doctrines and teaching sound doctrine. Like clearly Paul's concern that he's exhorting Timothy to respond to regarding the teaching of false doctrines needs to be countered it needs to be reversed. Paul urges Pastor Timothy to command his congregation to stop teaching and devoting themselves to false doctrines and to focus on God's work which at the near the end of verse 4 is a work of faith. That is what God has revealed. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why we do expository sermons. So that you can know, based upon God's very word, that it's not just me giving you instruction or whoever is teaching from the office of pastor elder. It's not just me giving instruction on things that I want you to know for whatever reason. But that it's God's the one who's giving us instruction and teaching on these things. Interesting statement is made in verse five regarding the correction of false doctrine and the teaching of true doctrine. What is the goal of this? Verse five, look with me if you can. The goal of this command for right doctrine is love. The goal of good doctrine is love. That's interesting, isn't it? And then Paul adds, which comes from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal or purpose of the command to stop the teaching of false doctrines and to promote and teach good, proper doctrine is actually a form of love. The command, in fact, has a negative and a positive aspect for the congregation. Stop them from entertaining untruth and let truth cause you to flourish in love. Like a congregation that is rightly fed on what is true is a congregation that is loved and that knows and experiences and practices what is proper and loving to one another and toward God. You could even say it this way, that the loving care of sound doctrine comes from and produces three things in the Christian life. And I think they're right there in verse 5. Pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Anybody that would want to argue, anybody that would want to say that thinking biblically about things too much, resting with God's word too much, thinking about theology and doctrine is an esoteric academic thing, is not understanding that according to the Apostle Paul, it's actually how we love people. And look at what it produces. Sound doctrine produces three things the first is a pure heart I'll give you I'll give you a d word for each of these to define them what is a pure heart a pure heart means that we would desire the right things by God's redeeming and cleansing work in us a pure heart means God has formed our desires that we long for what is right we know what is good and true A good conscience would be that we would distinguish, there's that second D word, that we would distinguish between right and wrong by God's divine grace. That we've been freed from the shackles of sin and death. And that God has empowered us to, to to, to not just desire, but to distinguish between what is right and wrong. We can live in freedom that sin no longer shackles us. And third, a sincere faith. And here's the third D, that we would be devoted to Christ in personal and genuine ways. So think about how practical this is for a moment. When we raise up our children, when we raise up disciples, when we catechize catechize our people in sound doctrine, their desires are rightly formed. They're able to distinguish between what is good and true and right And they're devoted to Christ because as we've said from this pulpit several times, everybody has a devotional life, everybody. It might be to the Chicago Bears or Green Bay Packers. It might be to some other kind of athletic or sport. It might be to money or retirement or intimacy or relationships or getting married or children or whatever it may be, but we all are devoted to something. And what sound doctrine does, its own form of God's love for us is it allows us to develop a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, or the right desires, the ability to distinguish between true and false, and a devotion to Christ that is, that, is, that is rooted in what is right and true and good. Those are important things for us to know. Because truth can be denied, it can be distorted, it can even be diluted. And we need to make sure that we have what is right and true. In many ways, this exhortation about a a local church expressing the love of God by teaching sound doctrine is a warning against novelty in Christian teaching. It also should exhort us to be encouraged to follow through with what we sense God leading us to do in this church by establishing a more and a bigger focus on catechesis, catechism, one of those four vision statement words that we want to be a catechizing church. We want to raise up disciples who know sound doctrine. We we long for and are already preparing to have this growth hour with this structure, sandwich structure on Sunday mornings where we are catechizing all the people that you have all access to being catechized in sound doctrine, which we believe is a loving act, a, a overtly practical act of shepherding one another to know sound doctrine, to, to, to direct your desires, to distinguish between right and wrong, and to facilitate your devotion to Christ. Those three things we see in verse 5. The language here in this passage suggests that even By the time of Paul, Christians recognizing that there were core doctrines in Scripture that could be grasped and could be understood should be known and received. And we believe that, that you as a disciple, whether you've been a disciple for 50 years or 15 weeks, have things that you need to make sure you understand properly about God and yourself and his world. Not everybody knows that. And some people think that doctrine is something added to Scripture in some way or, or drawn out in a way that makes it less connected to God's Word. But this text points differently than that. I remember we had just finished dinner, getting our kids ready for bed. This is when we lived out in California before my daughter was even born, just two little boys at the time. There was a knock at the door and there were two young men with little name tags that said Elder on them. And I immediately knew not elder in the sense of our understanding, I immediately knew that they were uh, Mormon missionaries. We're standing there, and I mean, uh, they came to find out quickly that they'd knocked on the door of a professor of New Testament, and so we had a fascinating conversation about core doctrines and truths of the Bible. And, and even if it was only a 20, 25 minute conversation, I remember at one point that when I was talking to them about core doctrines, where obviously there was disagreement, they just assumed that a lot of the doctrines, doctrines for them, including our view of Christ as being divine, as being equal to God, doctrine of the Trinity, these core doctrines of Orthodox historic Christianity, they just assumed that when the Bible left its Jewish context and got into the Greco-Roman world, that Greek philosophy distorted what was true and that these doctrines were uh, an imposition on the biblical text. And and, and in our 20, 25 minutes together, I pushed against that strongly. I tried to show from biblical material how from early on, the the apostles recognized that these core truths about God's person and God's work was evident right in the text. These are the kind of things that we need to be teaching and making sure our people know well. It might be easy for us to assume that when we read like in verses 4 and following about these myths and endless genealogies that that's not an issue that we face today but I would like to challenge us in that. It might seem like that's we don't have this we don't believe in the greek gods or strange views on genealogies that that's not our issue. Now I think you'd be surprised I read a book this Christmas by a guy named Carl Truman, a book that's been heralded much in recent days. It just came out this year. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a fascinating, though 400-page read, not simple, but helpful as it recounts the story of the modern identity like how we've moved to this modern identity in all of its expressions, sexual and otherwise, sexual identities, racial identities. It's a fascinating biography, so to speak, on the development of the modern person. And he details the story behind our highly individualistic, anti-institution, anti-tradition, sexually obsessed, materialistic mindset affecting every modern American. Now, again, this is just so normal to us that I don't think we realize how entrenched we are in it. We might pick on some abuses over here and over there. We might speak about those views that are kind of magnifying on steroids these same kind of views. But I don't think we realize that 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 infiltrates the way we think about everything. The very fact that I could tell you that that people in a local church could be spoken to with a spiritual authority by their pastor and they would, without any hesitation, want to leave and go to another church when rightfully treated is an example of the same thing that Truman is talking about. Meaning the only way we're going to be able to see our own infiltration of what is untrue, what is false or not sound, is by the light of God's Word. We need to make sure that Scripture is is correcting and training us in righteousness, rebuking us in the ways that God has called us to live with one another. Last thing, the, the end of our passage uh, might feel, verses 6 to 11, might feel a little overwhelming. This list of talking about, Paul talks about the law. He talks about all these various sins, and he ends with that exhortation to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Uh, let, let me summarize verses 6 to 11 this way. There are many people, and many churches, who have left the central teachings of the Christian faith and have turned to meaningless talk Unimportant things or things that deny, distort, or dilute the truth. Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying this is not for us. We need to expose, we need to oppose false teaching and be grounded on sound doctrine. Now, now, Paul then goes on to talk about both law and doctrine, and that might even be confusing. So let me summarize it for you this way The Bible is full of both laws. And doctrines, laws are commands that give direct instruction, do this or don't do that. Doctrines are concepts that give indirect instruction, believe this or believe that. The Bible is full of both of those, and Paul is urging us to develop ourselves fully with knowing God's laws, his commands and knowing biblical doctrines, truth concepts, so that we not only know what we should be doing, but that by understanding what is true and right and good, we can live in a way that opposes what is false and lives out what is true. Maybe here's an analogy I read this week. The difference between law and doctrine is the difference between medicine and health-giving food. Medicine, law, command treats a specific health issue whereas health giving food think doctrine or concept empowers for wellness we need to be conformed to the gospel and the laws of God and the doctrines of God in direct and indirect ways help us do that think of this analogy for the difference between laws and doctrines Uh, getting married there's laws in the Bible that tell you, well, it must be a believer. Or if, it's a, if you're a man, it must be to a woman. Like, there's some specific things. But it doesn't tell you much more than that. It doesn't say it has to be a blonde. Or they have to only be within 12 months age difference. Or they have to have been at a Baptist or Presbyterian. There are so many things that the Bible wouldn't tell you directly about the person you would marry. But there would be numerous indirect concepts, i.e. doctrines, truths that would guide you to find a person that would create a healthy, loving, God-centered home and a level of compatibility and mission, etc., that would reflect the kind of healthy life that you're called to live. So there might not be a law to tell you what this person's name is, but their character, the nature of their person, their vision for life, and their commitment to God would be would be pointed at and talked around all throughout Scripture. Think about even in the, in the act of marriage. Uh, what, what's, what's a healthy marriage look like? Well, there's certain commands that husbands, you don't beat your wives, uh, support them well, love them well, don't abuse them. There's clearly those commands of these things are the edge of anything appropriate to a normal marriage. But it doesn't say anything, husbands, about should you do the diapers or should only your wife? Like how should you be helping in the kitchen? Like What kind of a tone should you use? Uh, how, 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 what's a good fight look like? So that you're actually trying to reconcile, not just win. Like There's numerous aspects of a marriage that there might not be a law directly addressing, but there would be numerous health-giving concepts, doctrinal truths about the character of a person that could be immediately and directly applied to the life of a husband who loves a wife well. In, in all of life, in every, every area of our lives, this is being true. This is why Paul at the end says, through law and sound doctrine, we are to be conformed to the gospel. That's the goal of every church, conforming people to the gospel. And brothers and sisters, that's the goal of every Christian. Your relationship should be conformed to the gospel. Your families and marriages should be conformed To the gospel. The way you work, why you work, how you work should be conformed to the gospel. Your use of money, your use of the television and news, uh, your time, your talent, your treasures, everything should be conformed to the gospel. That's a lifelong activity. All of this. All of our conforming to the gospel is based on the fact that the gospel, as much as it is a message, what God did for us us through Jesus, is ultimately about a person, who God is. Notice how Paul ends our text in verse 11. For whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, end of verse 10, now 11, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. What an interesting way that Paul ends. The good news of the gospel is not exhausted by the truth that Jesus forgives our sins and gives us new life. It also points to the splendor and the glory of God. Like what is true about sound doctrine, but about knowing God's word and, and applying it to our lives, being conformed to the gospel, is, is being ultimately in alignment with God, our Creator, who is blessed and glorious. The Christian life begins with the work of God for us, but it exists eternally in blessed relation with the person of God. I, I think of the song we've sung many a times as a closing, and I'll close our message today. You can even sing where you're at the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Listen to these words. Praise Him, all creatures, here. Below, praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Notice that our praise is facilitated by a message of the work of God, but it ends in praise of the Person of God made known through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, oppose false doctrine. Avoid false teachings and teachers and hold to, be conformed by sound doctrine that conforms you to the gospel concerning the glory of our blessed God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to us in these ways. Help us to see its truths, help us to hear the exhortation that Paul gave to Pastor Timothy, and help us to be a a church that Paul exhorted Timothy's church to be help help our pastor elders to carry a spiritual authority that lovingly and doctrinally ministers to your sheep father and help our people to respond appropriately as responding as to the lord when they interrelate with their under shepherds like me and others father help us to avoid False teachings and to see that sound doctrine is number one, a way that we are loved by you and love you back, and number two, that it's being conformed to the gospel. Help your commands, your laws, help your concepts, your doctrines, both in direct and indirect ways. Help us know what is right and good and true. Help us to live in that way, Father. I pray that my brothers and sisters would have the right desires would be able to distinguish between right and wrong and have a growing devotion to Christ because of the work that we do here in this church to oppose false doctrine and to teach sound doctrine, but also the work that they do in their own life with you. Be with them now. Father, I pray that quickly we can gather together that they will begin to feel comfortable coming back and with the restrictions and the health risks, Father, that you would would remove those in due course so that we could gather together as your people. I pray for them specifically, Father, even if I don't even know every particular person who is on this particular Sunday watching this message, that you would minister to them in their situation. Father, you know who they are and about about, about what they're dealing with. I pray that you would minister to them this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.